Welcome to the Hillside Community Church Podcast. Wherever you're at in your faith, we hope this episode encourages you. If you enjoy the listen, let your friends know, and we'll catch you next time. All right, well, it's good to be back in our series uh, uh, called Crystal, trying to get clarity on certain matters of our faith, uh, which we've been looking in the book of Colossians to do. Sometimes our faith gets fuzzy, gets cloudy. We're not sure what we believe anymore. Um, Or you might be in a stage where you're not sure you even want to believe. So this series over the last couple months has been committed to that. So if you're just joining us, uh, we're pretty far in and we're looking at, uh, we've been looking for about a month now, a little over uh, the subject of the church because Colossians surfaces that as a critical issue to the life of our, to our faith. It's critical to how we think about our faith. So we're asking questions like, well, what is the church? How important is it? What level of involvement should I have with it? And I'm talking about the local church that you attend, wherever, wherever it is you attend. Uh, and we've learned that we've perhaps underestimated the role of the church, the value of the church uh, in our lives. So, uh, at the heart of this is understanding that if you're related to Jesus, if you're related to him, to the head of the church, that's what we learn in Colossians, he's the head of the church. If we've related to the head, that means we're part of the body. So, uh, we can't say, I don't want to be part of the body, the church, and still be connected to the head. If you do that, you're dismembered. Okay, it's sort of a gory image. Um... And you're having some out-of-body experience spiritually. And a lot of Christians have this out-of-body experience where they're not connected to the church enough to have the things that we've mentioned. There's a spiritual growth that occurs only in the body. You can't get alone. There's a, uh, an identity. When you, when you gather with everyone else, when we do what we do together... And all of the prejudices are lost, and the barriers between us are lost, and there's unity amongst diversity. That plays out when we're together. You can't have that alone. And then community, the relational, where we're loving each other and forgiving each other. You've got to be close enough to somebody to offend them and to be offended so that you can be loved and forgiven and you can offer love and forgiveness when it happens to you. That's the life we've been looking at. So we have been essentially saying in this series, uh, this profound reality, that your identity and experience as a believer is not primarily uh, to be understood in personal or uh, better uh, private or individualistic terms. They're corporate. You see yourself in all of those dynamics. Uh, so there's no Jesus in me. It can't just be me relating to the head alone outside of the body. Whatever he's providing through the resources, through the brain that operates this body, I've got to be in this body to receive them. That's what we're saying. There are things you can only get connected to the body and you can't get in some out-of-body experience. So, there's a fourth one. Not only spirituality uh, or identity or community. Fourth one is purity, and we're going to look at that one today, and here's what we're going to learn. 
uh, we are going to learn that not even your sin is your own. Not even your sin is your own. So your spirituality is not your own. Your identity is not your own. You can't have community unless you're in the community. And even your sin is not your own. Can't be viewed solely through an individualistic standpoint. That's the degree to which you have to see yourself corporately. That not even your own private sin is just a private matter. It's a corporate matter, and we need to understand what that means and what that looks like. How you live your life is not a private matter. So we need to be connected to the church so we can be accountable to it, because we're accountable for how we live our lives. So we're asking the question today, what does that mean? What does that look like? And I just want to say to those of you who might not be Christian yet, um, not sure what you believe, and you've, maybe you've just popped in today, or maybe you've been coming for a little while. You're not sure this is the church for you or if church is for you. Um, and church maybe scares you a little bit. I get that. Um, well, you happen to join us on a Sunday that uh, is probably maybe the deepest end of the pool in, the, in church conversation. So um, this might take your breath away a little bit. I want to I help understand, I want to help you see that and understand it and sort of understand it from your perspective a little, and I'll tease out why it's a good thing you did hear it, even though it's a little breathtaking. And for those of us who've been coming to church, and we've got different levels of involvement to church, it doesn't matter if you just attend a little or if you're a partner here. This is breathtaking, what we're about to learn today. Uh, so... Just a little caveat, a way to save my own skin, a little bit. Just a way to save my own skin. So we're going to take a step back. We've got to take a step back first before we enter that. And we need to look at uh, how the church was formed and what God's doing through it. What's the goal of it? Because then this will make more sense. When we first started this series, we were in Colossians, and we looked at this hymn, and we just found this incredible hymn that that exalts Christ, the cosmic Christ. And by cosmic, I mean over the universe, over creation and everything. And then uh, this cosmic Christ with authority over everything is, becomes the head of the church. And you're going, you, you went all the way from universe to church. How important must the church be if if it's related to all creation. I mean, you take the, the ruler of creation and you make him head of the church, you would think to yourself, well, the church must be pretty darn important. Right? So what's the church doing? What's he doing with it? What is this great leader, this cosmic leader, doing in and through the church? Well, we, we've, we looked at that. He's reconciling all things to himself. So somewhere along the line in creation after he made it, something went terribly wrong. And everything he intended for creation was violated, vandalized. And something had to be done about it. And when I say something had to be done about it, something had to be done about it to the degree that God, at infinite cost to himself, goes to a cross to die, to solve it. Whatever the fracture was, 
was great enough for God to have to solve it himself in, a, in, in, as, in as costly a way as possible. So he goes to the cross. That's Jesus on a cross to solve this problem. Whether things in heaven and earth, so this is a cosmic issue. What Christ did has universal implications. Everyone, everyone, if they hope to be reconciled to God, the cross is the place to begin. So when we think of that, um, let's go to this verse. You see, he's reconciling all things to himself through the cross, things in heaven and earth, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Here it is. And although you, now it's going to get personal. It's one thing to talk about, oh, this great, the church and, and Christ is reconciling all things. Well, guess what? You're one of the all things. I'm one of the all things. Now it gets personal. You, you were formerly, here's the story, alienated from God, hostile in your mind, and engaged in evil deeds. So it's a real, it's a, an incredibly short way to summarize the fracture. We were separated from God. That, and it wasn't just that uh, there's a little distance between us. We were hostile to him. So when Adam and Eve chose to sin and chose to not have God rule over their lives, that was, that was them claiming their own ground, saying, God, we don't want you. There was hostility in it. That's why you have to reconcile, because there's hostility you gotta, you got to make peace because we're enemies with God. So we become enemies with God. Because we're separated from him, we become his enemies. And when we get that hostile disposition, we produce evil deeds. There it is. There's your whole psychological summary. Anybody in a psychology class these days? There it is. We're nuts. We're all nuts. And it's because we were separated from God. And we got hostile and angry became his enemies, and we just, and, and everything we did, you know, sin, my favorite definition of sin is just a violation of the way things God intended them to be. And so that's the story. And remember what Paul says earlier in this text, that reconciliation, the reconciliation is what solves this whole cycle of sin. God has to find a way to get us back together with him, back together with him, so that we lose that hostility and we stop doing evil deeds. And that's where he says in verse 14, we, seen, we saw it weeks ago, where he says, we have in him redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins. And the cost for that forgiveness was Christ on a cross. That was the cost. To break that cycle of sin, heal the relationship with God and break the cycle of sin. Now you say... Thank goodness he did that. I'm so happy as a Christian. I love being forgiven. Is that it? Are we just done there? Because everything we're about to say today is, is pivoted on that thought, that question. Is it done there? No, Paul's not finished. Look at the verse. He has now reconciled you, there it is, in his fleshly body through death, in order to, there's a purpose to it, look, to present you before him, and that's probably God in this text, 
to present you, Jesus, to present you before him, holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. That's the goal right there. It's not just to forgive you of your sins. It's to make you sinless. To eventually. So here's, this, is all, this is sacrificial language. Remember the lambs in the Old Testament had to be holy, had to be set apart. They had to be flawless. And so here's what's happening. Christ's perfect sacrifice on your behalf, on my behalf, so that he could actually present us as a sacrifice to God. Holy, blameless, without reproach. Ephesians 5 says this beautifully. You've probably only heard it in a marriage context. But think about it because it's exactly what Paul says here in Colossians. In Ephesians 5, he says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, here's language where you're saying, I thought Jesus died for me. I thought when I speak of Jesus dying, he died for me. No, no, no. You speak of Jesus dying, he died for the church, the whole group of us. He gave himself up for her, that he might present her, the church, to himself in all her glory, without spot, wrinkle, holy, blameless. That's the goal. That's the goal. That we be holy. So Christ comes, and because of his blood, the sins that we've committed, we become acceptable in God's sight, so holy in sort of a positional sense. And then one day, we'll be presented to God actually holy. Not just in a positional sense, but in a real actual sense, we'll be holy. Well, what are we supposed to do in between? Are we just forgiven and that's the extent of it? Or are we to be becoming holy so that we're ready to be presented? That's the goal. When the church gathers together, it's trying to be this. It's trying not to be hostile to God anymore and engage in evil deeds. That's what we're trying to do. So, now, how does that relate to my personal sin? How does the, that relate to me as I'm a part of this church and my sin? Because, I mean, if the church isn't going to be holy, it's because you and I aren't going to do holy stuff. We're going to be sinning. So how does the church deal with that when it happens? That's what we're talking about when we talk about the purity, our moral purity. So I want to take you to Matthew 16 real quick, and I just want you to remember this little comment because it's very important where Jesus says to Peter, I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. I'm going to build my church, Peter. Now you say what the rock is. The rock is the con Peter's confession which says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Yes, that will be the foundation. Sort of the essence of who I am in the gospel. That's what the church, the essence of the church stewards that message, that God is reconciling the world through his Son. That's the rock we build on. I'm going to build the church on that, Peter, and it will be powerful, more powerful than hell itself, more powerful than death itself. And, watch this, it's important, I'm going to give you the keys. I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? Is the, ch the church is going to get keys. 
Well, listen, if you have keys, you have authority and you have access if you have keys. He's giving the church access to the kingdom of God. And now watch this. Whatever you bind on earth shall have already been bound in heaven. This is amazing. And whatever you loose on earth shall already be loosed in heaven. This is an incredible way to say that some of the decisions that you're going to make about who, who's in and who's out, see, that's what bind and loose mean. Who am I holding on to and who am I loosing? Who am I letting go? Lucy. Who am I letting go? So you have the authority. And when you act on that authority, you will have done what has already been done in heaven. You're not telling heaven what to do. Heaven's already told you what to do. That's the point of the future perfect. It's very rare in Greek. But you see it every now and then. And in this text, you see it. When the church acts to either hold or let go of, it's responding to what heaven has already done. So the church isn't moving heaven. Heaven's moving it. Do you see that? It's really important. Church has no authority in itself. It has it in God and in Christ. So, now what does that all mean here? Because this is, this is heaven and earth interplaying with one another. This is uh, authority and access. The church has authority and access. That means the local church is God's authority on earth. Make that connection. It's important. The local church is God's authority on earth that does two things officially affirms your faith and shapes the the Christian life and shapes my Christian life. So let me say it to you this way because I bet you haven't thought about it like this. The highest authority on earth when it comes to your spiritual life, your discipleship, is the church. Christ is the head of it. You're not connected to Christ unless you're connected to the church. If you're connected to the church, you're under his authority. And that authority is worked through the church because he's given it the keys. You say, how does the church affirm profession? Well, there's lots of people who claim to be Christians, and they're not. How do they get affirmed? How do they know they are? The church does that. You join a local church, and so we'd have people that'll come and join our church, and we got these go classes. So you'll come to the first class, it's called Go Discover, and you'll discover a little bit about Hillside, and you're saying, I'd like to be a part of a church. And maybe, maybe you think you're a Christian, but you're really not one, and so you get to the Go Further class, and when you get to Go Further, after you've discovered, you get to Go Further, and then we tell you what it means to be a Christian, we have people in that class that go, oh, I didn't know that's what it meant to be a Christian. Well, now the church gets to say, well, no, that's what one is, so we affirm what one is, or what one isn't, you see? That's how the church does it. So, and it shapes the way my Christian life is. The body shapes my Christian life. So, yes, it has the authority to do that. Now, let's continue. So, what happens to me? I become this Christian. The church affirms who I am, my profession. It affirms that, yes, what you what you. What you believe, we affirm what you believe. Now we affirm. Now the church gets to affirm, do you really live that? Or are you just blowing smoke to yourself and to others? 
How do you know that? The church helps affirm that. That's what it's there for. So, what happens if I sin? What do we do about that? Is that a serious matter? I'll tell you what, if you're a lost person here or you're a person who doesn't know Jesus yet, you're kind of investigating Christianity, you're not sure if you want it or not, I guarantee you wish the church handled their sin a little better than they do. You wish they had a plan they followed when one of their people claimed to be a Christian and do stupid stuff. I guarantee you wish that they had one. Well, there is one. So while this is the deep end, you're probably sitting back there going, yeah, I wish you guys would handle your stuff a little better. The whole world looks at the church and does that. Well, what are we doing about it? Well, let's just go two chapters later to Matthew 18. If your brother sins, what do you do if you have a brother that sins? So highly relational. And some of your Bibles might have if your brother sins against you. And to be honest with you, this is one of those texts where it's really hard to know which one, if it's just if your brother sins or if he sins against you. The truth of the matter is the subject we're going to deal with, the, what we're going to look at here, applies to both anyway in the rest of the New Testament. I'll prove that to you next week, so you've got to hold on to your horses. I just need you to trust me now that it's either sins or sins against you. So what do you do with a brother who sins, either against you or just sins in the body? What do you do? If your brother sins, go and show him his fault. Say this word out loud. In private, this isn't pub, this isn't this isn't a game. You go to him in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. So now this text is saying there's some listening going on and there's some winning going on. You listen to someone else about the sin you're committing and you listen to that, there's winning. That's winning. But what if he doesn't? What if he wants to be a part of the church, but he doesn't want to stop sinning? He doesn't want to stop the sin he's being... Let me say something about this sin. Because we all sin. And, you know, we're not trying to, you know, recruit a bunch of sin sniffers. <laughs> Sniffing out sin. We're all sinning all the time. Okay? This isn't about that kind of stuff, because most of that sin we hate in our own lives. I'm talking about you're doing something really, maybe you don't even realize you're doing it, because that happens. Or maybe it's something you're struggling to change, but it has become something that somebody in your life notices and goes, this guy's, I'm, it could be, a, it could be huh, I hate to use illustrations, because you, you got a friend who's getting drinks too much on the weekend? Doesn't realize he's doing that? You got a friend who's uh, sleeping around on his wife? You got a friend who's got this obvious thing and it's there and it's always there. And anybody, who's helping this guy? Who's helping that lady? Just crossing lines. happily trying to live their Christian life and crossing clear lines. Well, somebody's got to go to that person. If he listens, you want him. If, he's, if at least he's got to be able to say, yeah, I, I'm struggling with that. I need help. Whatever it is. Okay? But let's say he doesn't want it. What happens then? Well, let's see. If he doesn't listen to you, do we just say, let's just ignore it? 
Let's just let that guy do what he does and be a part of the body and it's not a big deal. If he doesn't listen to you, you take one or two other people with you and they become witnesses. So that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, this is a, whenever you see all caps, they're quoting the Old Testament. This is Deuteronomy. That's how they handled things in the Old Testament. Two or three witnesses to confirm it. So I got two or three buddies with me now and we go sit down. And we talk about it. We tease it out a little bit more. Maybe three other people can help you see. Two other people can help you see what you couldn't see when I told you. But here's your second chance. To see it, listen, and be one. But what if he doesn't listen? What if he doesn't listen? What are we supposed to be doing with each other when that happens? If he refuses to listen to them, all right, say these, this whole phrase right here out loud. Tell. Oh, we've got to do better than that. We need to hear that out loud. I want it of you. Tell. What happens if you're not part of a church? You missed the whole third step. You missed the whole third step. And these days in our culture, you better be a member and a partner of that church. Otherwise, the church gets in trouble when they hear about your sin and talk about it and try to help you with it. So you go through partnership so that you could be part of the church. And you got to have a church to tell it to. That's, I'm going to tell you, that's one of the best reasons why when you get to a church you want to be at, you trust them and you believe what they believe and you see that the scriptures are the highest priority in the gospel. You join that baby. You really don't join a church. This will shock you a little bit too. You submit to one. They have the keys. You don't. No individual has the keys. When you submit to a church, you trust. They have the keys. So you better trust them. Because we don't want to, we don't trash people, and we don't want to be this you know weird cultic kind of control over people's lives. That's not the case at all. What we're talking about here is sin, which we all agree Jesus saved us from, which we all agree is trying to make us holy. We all should hate sin. We all ought to be in agreement on that issue. So you tell it to the church, and if he doesn't listen to the church. The church has authority to do what? Treat that person. Let him be as a Gentile and a tax collector. What does that mean? I'll be able to tease out the process of that next week a little bit better. But watch this. He's going to say, you know, Gentile was the outsider. You know, to the Jew, the Gentile was the outsider. So that word sort of became sort of a, an idiom, a technical term. For the person on the outside who's not in with God. And a tax collector was the worst sinner you could be. That was the guy that, man, nobody even imagined that guy was a Christian. So what he's saying is, is if you don't listen to that body, then you're treated as if you're not part of the body, and that's not a healthy place. That means we're not admonishing you anymore. We're evangelizing you now. We're treating you as if you are not even a believer now. Now, you hear that. That is... That ought to stop all of us dead in our tracks. Wow. 
And by the way, the only time the New Testament pictures a believer who's not in a church, just read this yourself, is when he sins and he gets thrown out. And when he gets thrown out, it's a dangerous place. And I'm going to show you that next week. The church has a protective kind of, is a protective kind of place. And if you're not in it, it's scary. For one thing, you're an outsider. The church has sort of exited you out because you refuse to deal with sin. Now, so let me just say this to you. I ought to be connected enough to a church to be kicked out of it. I ought to be connected enough to a church to be kicked out of it. And if I was kicked out of it, it would devastate me as a person. And it would devastate the community that I was gone. It would be devastating to me. And it would be devastating to the church if if I had to be kicked out. It would be devastating. To the point where you almost couldn't handle it. And you'd have to stop doing the sin that they're telling you you're doing. So if you don't listen to the one and you won't listen to the two or three, maybe the whole body when you're not in it anymore and you don't have its influence and you don't have its protection and you don't have its love and you don't have its care and you don't have the connections there anymore, you feel that enough to make you say, I can't live like this. That's how connected you ought to be to a church that if you didn't have it, you couldn't live like that anymore. say, well, I have friends who help me, you know, with, you know, keep myself accountable. Well, if those friends confront you and you don't believe it and you're not in the church with them, they have no church to go to to kick you out. How are you and I going to be, how am I going to be kicked out? How am I going to have that devastation? Or you say, I watch out for myself. Oh, please, God help us. We're the worst self-auditors in the world. We let ourselves off the hook way too much, and often we don't even see our own sin. You see enough of your own sin, you go, I need to stop that. Somebody doesn't even need to tell you, you know you need to quit doing that. But then there are times when you can't see it, and you don't know where, what the issue is. You don't see it, and you're not managing it well, and you're not changing. And you need... You need some, someone. We're all that way. So Aristotle used to say, if you want to do this on your own, you're going to be in trouble. You know what you'll be like? He calls you, the, you're like the Cyclops, the mythical sort of monster creature that had one eye and he couldn't see. Aristotle said, if you want to be a loner and you don't want to submit the quality of your life to other people, then you're going to end up living like a Cyclops and you're going to become mean and destructive because you don't have enough perspective. It's not enough, and it'll be self-focused. That one eye will be focused on you, and you won't have the perspective you need. You need more eyes on you. I know that's scary. I was reading something not long ago, and I came across this, and I, uh, um, I thought it was very, very profound. Kept it on my desk, and I've just read it myself for months. 
I'm going to read it to you in light of this. This is what he says. When you don't give other people in any power in your life, when you block them, and he's speaking of this issue, he says, he says, in this context, just hear it, I think you're spiritually dead. That's how harsh he is. And you're not far from evil. That is true. It won't be long before you start doing evil things. Oh, sure, you won't call them evil. You will not even recognize them as evil on the surface of your awareness. Atomized, sequestered consciousness is the seed of unrelated Aristotelian independence bearing its full fruit in Western isolation. See, in Western society, our own sin is our issue. You leave me alone. That's how we think about our sin. It's mine and I'll deal with it. You don't get to to point out my sin. That's not how it is in the community. That's not how it is in in Christ's community. So you'll have to fight culture at a high level in order to abide by this principle. But he's not finished. He goes, we become unquestioned masters of our own shrinking kingdoms. That's a great line unquestioned masters of our own shrinking kingdoms. Hermetically sealed containers of self. And then he writes this, and it's powerful. Goodness goes there to die. You want to be a part. Who doesn't want to be a part of the community because they want to be holy? And if being holy means i got to be part of the community where I have more eyes on me than me, who doesn't want that after what Christ has done for them? Do you see? So the church has the official capacity to treat you as someone, you know, if you refuse, if you refuse to to, to see your sin or to stop this thing, something's wrong in you. And the scriptures are attesting to it. The church is saying something's wrong in that person's heart. If they say they love Christ and they want to be a part of the church, but they don't want to stop the sin that's devastating it. And I want to show you next week the devastation of on the church when you're sinning. I'm going, to, I'm going to show you some actual things we've actually had to deal with here and what happens to this process. Because it's just that important. And no. Look at the second half of this text. Truly I say to you, here's going to use the same language, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Ah, now we're getting a context for what bind and loose means. What does bind and loose mean? You bind that guy into the community. You keep him in there because he sees his sin and he, and, he, and he hates it and he wants to repent of it. But if he doesn't and you loose him, you just know heaven's on your side. Does everybody see that? That's incredible. That is incredible. Again, I say to you, Jesus says, if two of you, this is the same two or three, agree on earth about anything, and the anything is obviously related to the, the, the sin that we're just describing, 
that they may ask and it shall be done for them. Because assuming they're praying over this, the two or three that have gathered together, this is so sacred of an issue that all heaven's eyes are on it. And the two people involved in it or the three people involved in this thing are praying about it. They're not gossiping. They're praying. And I've been in this two to three prayer thing. I'll tell you what you're praying in this. You better be praying. God, I know I'm not worthy of pointing out someone else's sin. Please protect me. And God, open their eyes so they can see it. That's your two prayers. That's what the two or three are praying if they're godly. And when the two or three are praying that way, heaven hears it, and look at this, agrees. Agrees. For where two or three have gathered in my name, you guys, have we've quoted this in so many different contexts that are not the right one. This isn't small group eating chips, waiting for prayer time or Bible study. This is two or three. What are the two or three in this text? They're the witnesses to the sin, to the issue. It's very sacred. Where two or three have gathered in my name, there I am in the midst. Here's what Jesus is saying. You say, what's the point of the two or three? Well, first of all, they're witnesses. But second, here's, here's essentially what this thing is saying. The smallest meeting you can have is with two or three. Jesus is saying that, if, that the smallest meeting about this kind of sacred issue, let me know when you're meeting and I'll be there. That's what he's saying. Even if it's just two or three of you in a big old body, but you're dealing with the sin in someone's life that's ravaged it, you better believe, give me the time and place, and I will be there for that meeting. That's how important it is. Do you feel the weight of this, Hillside? Man, I hope you feel the weight of this. And I'll tell you what happens. I'll tell you what we do. We call everybody a Christian who names it. Got all kinds of people calling themselves Christians who don't live anywhere like one. And so what happens is the world is watching us and going, man, if you can live like that, who's not a Christian? So the church has the official capacity to say, you may call yourself one big daddy, but you're not. Not if you refuse to deal with sin in your life. Something's broken. Now, we can all be stubborn. You can have moments of stubbornness. That we, I have it. I have moments of stubbornness, moments of refusal. But then there's the Spirit of God that comes in and grabs a hold of your heart, and you just you can't hold on to that for very long. And it might be a process. It might be a process of coming to see it with those two or three people. But I got to come to see it, and I got to hate sin in my life. And if it's there, I got to hate it. So the church has the official capacity to bind and loose. You call yourself anything you want, buddy, but you can't be here and keep that attitude up now. You say, what kinds of things? What are the things? I'm going to tell you a couple of that were in our church next week. A few of those things that have been right here over the 22 years we've been here. What happens to the process and what happens to the church, whether the guy... Wants to go, doesn't want to go, sees it, doesn't see it. What happens? Because I think we need to know. 
You say, what do I get out of this today? First thing you need to get is I need to be absolutely overwhelmed by what Christ has done for me. We have people that say, well, you know, what are Christians? They're not perfect, but they're forgiven. And we fly that flag around. I'm going to tell you, you're more than forgiven. You're going to be presented holy. Live holy. Live holy. I'm forgiven, so I live holy. Not I'm forgiven, so I'm off the hook. I'm square on that hook. And I don't mind being on that hook after what Christ has done for me. Nothing good about me. And if you're a lost person here today, you don't know Christ, you're, you're, you're contemplating Christianity, I'm going to tell you the wonder of Christianity is that no matter what you've done or where you've been, God will forgive you right now where you sit. Right now where you sit. Forgiveness is available. And it's not available because the church grants it. It's available because Christ secured it on a cross. And all we do, all we do is affirm that message. It's available to every single one of us. Once we become a Christian, and then after it, in the church and through the church. And I'll tell you, one of the best things that can ever happen in your life is when sin in your life and two brothers show up to point it out to you, and they forgive your behind. You're closer than you've ever been to those two guys. And then watch what's going to happen. You're going to find one in their life, too. A loose wire. You got a loose wire in your life, dear buddy. And you get to help him with his. And you know why? Because we're all trying to be holy. Now, you probably have questions about this whole theme. That's okay. Deal with those next week a little bit more. In the meantime, we celebrate forgiveness. And we celebrate. But we don't stop there. We celebrate holiness. We celebrate holiness. So I hope you'll be back here next week to look at this just one step further. I want you to bow your heads. Father, even at this moment, I think about the sin in my life. I think about the sins that I don't see. David prayed a great prayer in Psalm 19. He said, Lord, help me see my, help me reveal my hidden sins. Things that are devastating me in the body. I don't want that. They're not just private matters. What I do affects this place. I thank you for your forgiveness. And I pray, Lord, we would encourage each other as a body to be holy. to submit ourselves to the accountability of this body. Because of what you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks for watching today's message. We hope it encourages you wherever you're at in your faith. If you enjoyed it, let your friends know. We'll catch you next time.